Welcome back to the Alts Podcast. I'm your host, Horatio Ruiz. We bring you industry leaders and creators to give their insights on the rapidly changing and exciting world of alternative assets. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the host and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. Our guest today is Alan Goldscher, head of content at the Sports Fractional Platform, Collectible. You may know Alan as the voice of Collectible Daily, Collectible's daily podcast, but Alan is also a published author and an accomplished musician. So it was great to have him on the show, talking about his experiences being on a world tour with the Diggable Planets and how he transitioned into other interests and now hosting the Collectible podcast. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Alan. Our guest today is Alan Goldscher, head of content at Collectible. Alan, thanks for being on the show. Well, like, like I said before we went on the air, one of the most difficult things about uh, doing a podcast, especially when it's a, a bare bones operation, is getting guests. Uh, so when I have the opportunity to um, help out a fellow podcaster, uh, especially one who works for a really cool company like uh, Alt, I take it. It's just my pleasure. Thanks a lot, man. We appreciate it. You are a multidimensional guy. You've had a, a music career. You're a published author, and now you're host of a sports fractional investment platform podcast. But I get the sense that music was your first passion. Can you talk about that a little bit? It was my first passion. I It's, it's funny. I have an eight-year-old daughter, and we're putting – I don't want to say pressure. Uh, it's more of a, a mental thing on our end. We want her to find her thing right? The one thing to focus on, the one thing that she loves. And in, I actually was talking to her about this uh, the other day. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was eight. I was playing trumpet in the uh, in the school band. I played that for like four years. Did not like it a bit. Uh, once I got into high school, I was introduced to the bass and I did like that. And I found my thing. I was 13, 14 years old at that point. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm asking too much out of my little eight-year-old, but in any event... So, yeah, I started playing bass as a freshman in high school and uh, concurrently was getting into jazz, like hardcore. I was kind of burnt out on the pop music of the day. It was the early 80s and it was transitioning between the more acoustic stuff that I really loved and then the more kind of electronic stuff. And I just I just wasn't feeling it at that point. Then jazz fell into my lap. Miles Davis, Chick Corea, just like all this wonderful stuff. And then all of a sudden playing an instrument had a point, right? Instead of just playing it to play it to get your part right, to learn to do etudes and exercises. I was actually learning songs that I enjoyed and that gave me some context and that, that, that made me super happy. And just luckily, uh, I, I got pretty good pretty quickly. And by the time I was 16, 17, I was gigging around Chicago, playing professional gigs, getting paid for it. And at that point, I'm like, okay, you know, I maybe could actually make a living out of this. So rather than go to college, I just, that my, my college was gigging. My college was jazz clubs. Uh, my college was moving to New York and gigging around there while simultaneously working at a record label and trying to figure out how, like what path would make the most sense, right? Whether I wanted to pursue playing for a living or pursue helping other people realize their musical dreams. That decision was made for me when my job at the record label was eliminated. 
So at that point, I was like, all right, I think I'm going to just play music for a living now because I don't have a record label job anymore. And I, I'm just going to blow past all this stuff. So I'm sure you, you sent me a really nice outline. Uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and answer these questions without you having to ask them. You're welcome. Uh, so, so right around this time, I, I uh, started playing at a club called Giant Step, which was a pretty, I don't want to say legendary, that's kind of overstating it, but it was a really hot, happening, cool, um, well-respected club where... Uh, acid jazz was the the general tenor of things and we'd have some amazing guests like one of the most amazing musical moments of my life was when grandmaster flash and melly mel sat in nana cherry if you remember her guru from gangstar like all these people would come on and and hop on the stage and play with us right around that time diggable planets uh dropped their single rebirth of slick cool like that and they had the white label out so nobody knew who it was but it was being played in our club all the time uh so the founder slash promoter maurice bernstein who's still doing a, a a business called giant step not not a club but doing a just an all-encompassing media business he said this guy from diggable plants wants to meet you and i said okay great i'm always up for meeting new people uh so we connected we vibed i he he gave me the record wasn't done yet the album wasn't done yet uh but he gave me a tape of what they had done and it was just right in my wheelhouse a combination of jazz and hip-hop with really fat bass lines so I ended up playing with them. I, I recorded on that album, recorded on their second album, toured with them for over a year, was lucky enough to see the world. Like there's no way I would have been able to go where I went ever, ever without music taking me there. Right. So that went on really well. And I know you had asked about um, me, wanted to, to hear about me playing on the Grammy Awards. They were nominated for two awards best rap performance and best new artist and uh they won one of them i think it was best new artist uh but we we played we performed a song uh we performed the the single cool like that and were ridiculously lucky to be joined on the stage by clark terry a legendary jazz trumpeter just a, a wonderful person wonderful player life highlight right playing on stage with him playing looking out in the audience and seeing bruce springsteen and, and and whitney houston frank sinatra while i'm on stage it was ridiculous i will always treasure that day and you know it kind of came to an ignominious end uh and at that point you know when you're in new york and you don't have a regular gig you don't have a regular music gig it, it kind of gets hard to keep the enthusiasm happening uh, so I kind of pulled away from the music and uh, that, you know, that brings us up to the mid nineties. How has the music industry changed from when you were playing with the Diggable Planets, uh, you know, in the nineties to now? That's a great question. Um, the, the most important thing to note with that question is the entertainment industry in 1992, three, four, five, six versus 2020, 21, 22, two different animals, two different animals. There are so many more choices now. Uh, and, you know, add the pandemic into the equation and there's no parallels, right? We were playing in packed clubs for a thousand and then in what they call sheds, the outdoor arenas for like 15,000. And for a band of that stature, that's just not going to happen anymore. And I was very, again, very lucky to play for so many people and the crowd that we were attracting 
was a real positive crowd because that first album of theirs was a real positive album, had positive unity messages. So kind of a hippy dippy vibe. The crowd that would come to see us, they'd be sincerely, you know, kind and and questioning uh, after the show, asking very pointed and good questions, not just saying, oh, dude, you were really good. Uh, you'd have a lot of great conversations. I met a lot of great musicians. I was able through the band to play uh, a did a session with the the producer from cypress hill and i did a session with the producer from naughty by nature and i ended up being on a janet jackson track and you know that would have never happened had we not been in that situation now it's just everybody can make music at home so you don't need really to get a bass player or just a special guest star because you can put your own album out right um i mean if they were a new band and they had just come out with their album. Yes, yeah, smaller venues, if any venues at all, because of the pandemic. Uh, you know, clubs in Chicago, just which is my only point of reference, because uh, I haven't done any traveling over the last couple of years. There are just a very small number of clubs in Chicago where any bands can play. Um, maybe like five to ten tops. And at those clubs, uh, for example, Lincoln Hall, right? Uh, they'll have like some pretty well-known singer-songwriters, but they'll also have um well-known regional bands who can who can draw bodies and since the music industry is so wonky since there aren't major labels pushing smaller to mid-sized debut bands uh, yeah you're kind of on your own traveling right now um you gotta load you gotta do your van tour you gotta sell your merch you gotta sell your your own cds and cds isn't even a thing anymore that's how you supplement your tour or your that's how you pay for the tour with the tour so it's just it's super frustrating for a musician, which is why if, if I may fast forward to uh, 2019, um, I started my own record label. I started Gold Note Records um, made. I've made like 13 some odd singles, a handful of VPs, six albums all by myself. Right. I do it in my house with my with my sound equipment and my MIDI MIDI controller and my bass and my voice. And I, I just this weekend, as a matter of fact, found out that I have uh, topped the 100,000 stream mark. That's not a big deal because like Taylor Swift, like, you know, blows a hundred thousand streams out of her nose every morning. But for me, who's just a dude in his basement making music, I'm, I'm super proud of it. So, Alan, as you're transitioning, right, as you're going from uh, a touring musician, the tour ends. I was kind of curious, what role did sports play uh, in your life? I mean, is that something that you always uh, a sports fan and you always kind of kept up with the events? Because then you kind of seem to pivot into into sports. Yeah, I have been a massive sports fan since I was a little itty bitty Alan. Uh, always a Chicago guy, but tried to stay up on everything. Uh, the three majors and even a little bit of hockey. Uh, when I moved to New York, I kind of lost touch with it because music just was dominating my time. And at that point, you didn't get much in the way of non-local broadcasts. So you'd have to like read a lot of newspapers and watch a lot of sports center, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I always did stay up with, with my uh, Bears and Bulls and, and uh, Cubs and White Sox. Yes, I like both Cubs and White Sox. So when I started writing for Reelsies, uh, like in the late 90s, so one thing, a little piece of advice for you, future writers and musicians and any creative out there, you got to put yourself out there. So I was, I figured I want to write about sports. So I'm going to reach out to like every sports magazine I can and try and get some gigs. 
Uh, and I ended up getting a gig with um, Freelance with Sports Sport Magazine, dearly departed Sport Magazine. Um, wrote a bunch of articles for them. Uh, ended up writing some stuff for ESPN, the magazine. Uh, wrote some stuff for the early iterations of NBA.com and ChicagoBulls.com. And in two, was it 99 or 2000, like right around there, um, I reached out to the Bulls and ended up getting a bunch of freelance work uh, with their in-house publications, their game programs and the the books they send to see some ticket holders. And that was kind of cool in that it taught me a lot about sports journalism, right? The, the writing itself was a little fluffy because it was for the team. So you couldn't really put any kind of op-ed type stuff in there. You had to write, it was all fluffy profiling, but it taught me how to, you know, be a better interviewer with athletes, which is different than interviewing musicians, which is different than interviewing authors, et cetera. Fast forward to like 2005, what was it? 17, 2017, I got a gig with FanDuel. And with FanDuel, I was writing a whole lot of articles. Then we pivoted to podcasting. Just right when Daily Fantasy was blowing up, I was doing a daily podcast for them about the NBA. It was uh, really difficult because I wasn't as knowledgeable as I am now. Audio software was not as intuitive as it is now, but it gave me so much background in doing this, right? It taught me how to do it, how to keep up the energy each day in and day out. And you know, it's, it's hard. You do a weekly show, right? It's hard to do even a weekly show, let alone a daily show. And yeah, it was, but it was a challenge, but it was really fun. And the, the lessons I learned along the way have been so important to me moving here to collectible. And so that's kind of like your, your sports writing side, because you're a multidimensional guy, man. And so then, then we go back. So there, there's a couple of things tying your music career and your kind of sports journalism. And then you've also like, uh, you're like a ghostwriter. You've written your own books. And even within there, right, you've done different things where you're not just stuck on one thing. You're, you're helping people write their, you know, biographies or you're writing uh, about them. And then you also have like a, like a nice little horror, uh, a niche that you've done. So how do you, how, you know, you're, you're tying all this together. Uh, can we talk about that for a second about like your, your writing, um, and, and the process and how that kind of is is different or maybe similar to your preparation as a musician or as a podcast host? The only commonality between all of you know the writing, the podcasting, and the making music is that I just go for it. Uh, I don't have any compunctions about trying different things because you know that's the way you learn is to try and make a mistake. I have no compunctions about putting myself out there. But in terms of approach, you know, uh, writing is a it's like a marathon. Uh, podcasting is a sprint and music is music's a hobby in effect. And, and I don't want to dismiss it. That, that makes it sound a little flip, but you know, music is fun. Music is the, this, and this is going to sound weird. It's the least challenging. It's the, e it comes the easiest to me, right? Podcasting is just, it's, it's not a bad grind, but it's a grind. It's a daily grind uh, writing. And I haven't written any books in, in several years and I don't have any, uh, real interest in doing my own books right now. That's it's so daunting. Writing a book is so daunting, but there was a period when that's what I did. Right. So when I was working at this music marketing company, one day I decided I'm going to write a novel. So I've always been a voracious reader. It was a semi-autobiographical novel. It's really bad, uh, but it did get published and I had a lot of fun. It was fun doing it. It was a huge accomplishment seeing it in the stores and seeing it, it you know in its finished form was just so inspiring and amazing so wrote a couple of the books and the horror stuff you were talking about 
the first one was uh it was called paul's undead uh the british zombie invasion and it's a retelling of the beatles story the beatles mythology as if they were zombies and that came about and i'm not gonna lie here that it was you know a completely original idea there was a book that had come out uh maybe a year prior called uh pride and prejudice and zombies which was a retelling of jane austen's pride and prejudice uh with zombies in it and it was a huge bestseller and people were trying to capitalize on that and get in of what, what they were calling the mashup uh on the mashup game uh and i'm like i gotta do this i gotta get in on it and i I love the Beatles. I love music. So I wrote that and it did pretty well. It sold, uh, it still blows my mind that it sold like 25,000 copies, which is amazing to me. It means 25,000 people spent money on my stupid little Beatles book. But then I got contracted by uh, St. Martin's Press, one of the major publishers, to do a couple other horror mashups. And uh, I guess those were more parodies than mashups. Uh, one was a parody of Sound of Music and one was a parody of uh, the first uh, Game of Thrones book. And a lot of fun. But then I think I just kind of hit the wall on uh, on the horror comedy stuff. Um, wrote some romantic comedies and like you alluded to, did a whole bunch of different uh, ghostwriting, worked with some musicians, some comedians. Uh, the book, The Ghost Project, I'm most proud of is the one I did with George Benson the guitarist vocalist i'm proud of that one this is a little how the sausage is made stuff here george was kind of difficult to pin down so i based the book on these um interviews he did with the smithsonian institute which were terrific interviews and it's the same kind of interviews i would have gotten on my own had he had the time but they're only six hours worth and it usually needs to get like a, a 75 to 100,000 word book you usually need about 20 to 40 hours of interviews but I was able to fill in the gaps with my knowledge of music and George. And um, that was, I'm super proud of that one. Just super proud of that one. Um, yeah. You know, that that's just awesome how, you know, you just, and I think the lesson there is like, and you mentioned it before is just go ahead and do it. Be, you know, if you're curious about something, just go ahead and do it. And I think that uh, that has a lot of uh, carryover into you know, into anything. And specifically right now, since we're kind of talking about, you know, um, collectibles, right? Like if people have an interest in it or if they, they want to have a desire to learn more about something, just, just, you know, dive in and, and see where it takes you. And it seems like it's taking you in, in a number of different places. Yeah. Um, I ended up, uh, with collectible after FanDuel, after a couple consulting gigs, uh, in the, in the sports space. Um, and it started out slow. I was just doing a little, a few written articles here and there. And then we amped up our content offerings. Uh, and for a while we were doing just written and yeah, just written. We had a whole website that I called uh, memorabilia adjacent. Uh, it was writing about sports in the past and uniforms and, and cards, but not about like this Mickey Mantle 1952 card is the one to get. It was more just about kind of a whimsical, uh, lighthearted look at that section of sports. We decided to pivot almost exactly a year ago uh, to podcasts. It was in February of 2021 where we said, all right, Alan's going to do a daily podcast. So we spent a month uh, doing sample programs, right? I did maybe like eight, 10 of them. I uh, had to make sure I can get the cadence down to do it every day. Had to make sure that everybody in-house felt comfortable with the product. And by the time it dropped on, I think March 1st was our premiere date, 
we hit the ground running. If you listen to the first show, uh, in terms of, of tone, it's not too far different from where we're at now. Although now it's, you know, now it's honed, it's tighter. Uh, it's strictly interview based. There used to be uh, kind of a news element to it, but now it's just interviews. Uh, th- there's no need for me to rehash the news that anybody could get anywhere else. I do miss that little jingle where it's, uh, I was like, yeah, it's time for business. It's business time now. Ah, you do. You are an old school listener. <laughs> Yeah, and that was one day. One day it wasn't there, and then it came back for maybe a few more days, and then it was gone. I was like, <laughs> man, I'm, I'm, you know, that that made my day every single time. Oh, I'm glad. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, but we 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 pivoted because at, at end of the day, like I was having trouble finding. It would usually be like four stories about the hobby, right? And at the beginning, 2021, right in that point, like maybe second and third quarter in 2021 something new was happening every day and then it got to the point where it calmed down a little bit and you know there weren't there was stuff happening but it was all within the same umbrella and the interviews were starting to get really good right i was able to get really great guests who were all really insightful really thoughtful and brought more to the table than my little you know news bits i credit the longevity to that because if it were just me I, you know, I'm entertaining enough, but I don't think I'm entertaining enough all by my lonesome to merit people coming back day in and day out to listen. But if I have someone on there, like, you know, to, today we had Darren Herman from Bain Capital and Darren gave just this wonderful breakdown of the uh, meeting between sports and investing. And he explained it traditional investing and he talked about alt investing and he talked about card investing. And, you know, that's the kind of show that has a little evergreen quality to it. People can go back and refer to it and say, mm, I, want, I need to learn about a little more about how this all works. And he gave us the uh, a, a blueprint of sorts and stuff like that. That's really cool. You know, tomorrow I have Joe Orlando on, who's uh, our new president, comma, sports. And we're going to talk about uh, how the major league uh, labor strife is impacting the hobby. So there's always something to talk about. And I can talk about the same thing every day of the week with five different people and get five different perspectives. And I feel like it's, it's pretty darn listenable despite the fact that we are talking about the same thing. And, you know, kind of one, one big question is what is that grind like uh, of having the daily show? And and you, you talked about it before the guests and, and just kind of the production and everything, but it's like, you have to be up, right? You have to be up for that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I legitimately enjoy it. Right. If I didn't enjoy it, if it was just a, a slog to listen to people, that's a problem. But I do enjoy it. Uh, one thing that people said to me about the hobby early on is that you're really going to like a lot of the people that are involved. And, you know, I make it a point to have all of my guests. I don't vet them necessarily, but I do talk to them a little bit before they come on. And if I don't think there's a rapport, we'll, we'll bang out the episode, but I probably won't have them back again. Right. But most of my guests, I've got a pool of maybe like 20, 30 guests who I rotate in. There's some I have each and every month. The the guys from Card Ladder I have on each month. Uh, Rich Miller from Sports Collectors Daily I have on each month. Mm-hmm. Slava Rubin from Vincent Alternative uh, Investments I have on each month. Darren, the aforementioned Darren Herman I have on each month. Uh, I have some of our in-house guys on. Uh, I have Joe Orlando on twice a month. Have been doing so for the last several months. And I think that's what kind of gives it a nice cadence is that uh, there's a genuine rapport. We have a good time. And I like to think that comes across on the air. I can't, I don't know, tired of the sound of my own voice. So it's hard for me to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, a hundred percent. And I think, I think that has a lot to do with uh, 
like you said, you know, building that rapport and, and, you know, and, and just your desire to listen to people and kind of engage in that conversation. Alan, I was going to, uh, you know, I thank you for your time. I kind of want in, in the interest of time here, kind of come down here and, and, you know, I, w- I was not going to let you go. I, I need to steal this from you. Mm-hmm. Can you give me your Mount Rushmore? Oh, I knew this was coming. Uh, see, I, can, I, I wasn't going to put that on the outline. I wanted to surprise you. Okay. Ba- so the backstory of this is I do this little, little segment with all of my new guests called the collectible daily three. And I have three hobby centric questions and uh, yeah, Horatio is throwing them back at me. All right. My hobby Mount Rushmore. So the way I always position this question is any era, any sport, any athlete, what four guys most represent the hobby? What four athletes to you, to me. And it could be, you know, it could be like, you know, random Steve Onaveros who's third baseman for the Cubs when I was growing up. (laughs) He's not on my list, but Michael Jordan is on my list because he has to be. Um, I'm going to put Walter Payton on there because he's Walter Payton, A, and B, when his memorabilia pops up, people tend to get pretty excited about it. You know, it's not Babe Ruth level prices, but he's enough of an entity to me personally and within the hobby that he belongs on on my Mount Rushmore. He's not going to be anybody else's Mount Rushmore, but he's on mine. Uh, you have to put Babe Ruth up there. I'm going to tell a little story here because it's hilarious. So we at Collectible last summer, we were involved in a deal in which we had a tiny little piece of this $6 million Babe Ruth uh, Baltimore Sun card. Uh, So I think it was like one of five or something like that. And we went out to Baltimore to the Babe Ruth birthplace and museum to have a press conference to announce it and, I was out there doing, you know, some interviews and did a podcast with the owner of the card, blah, blah, blah. So me and Ezra Levine, our, our CEO, we did a little uh, interview for camera in front of the pedestal that the card was on. It was a glass enclosed pedestal, uh, maybe like four or five feet high, uh, thin, probably about like nine by nine. And then, like I said, four feet high and not exactly the greatest piece of uh, storage for a six million dollar card. So I'm talking to Ezra, the camera's on, talk, 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 microphone, 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 and, you know, not paying attention to this wobbly pedestal. And I, my elbow grazed it as I'm putting the mic in front of his, uh, his face and it, it wobbled, <laughs> it wobbled. There was a, a $6 million card that had one of the, the, uh, people who work at the museum, not rushed in and put their hand in the back of it to steady it that could have fallen on the ground. So yeah, yeah. Babe Ruth, <laughs> a, a, a nice, a sigh of relief, a sigh of relief by everybody. So what do we got? MJ Peyton, Babe Ruth. And you know, I don't necessarily want to put two Yankees on there. Mantle's got to go on there though. And, and you know, you might have a sub Mount Rushmore with some of the modern guys, uh, LeBron Brady, uh, Mahomes, the guys that are just like eliciting these massive sales. But you know, if we're going to go vintage MJ, Walter, Ruth and Mantle. And Mantle. That's solid, man. Thank that you. is a solid one. Thank you. Listen, it's, it's great listening to you every day. Um, I really, really uh, enjoy it. Oh, thanks, man. There's some some great uh, content you guys put out and uh, a real pleasure talking to you, Alan. I hope we can do this, you know, you know, every so often. Happy to come back in Yammer. Awesome, man. It was so good talking to Alan. He's an uplifting dude and it was great to catch his Mount Rushmore of athletes. You can catch Alan on The Collectible Daily his website, alangoldshire.com, or catch his latest release on your preferred music streaming platform, live at the Lakeview Lounge. 
If you enjoyed today's podcast, let others know about it. We find our guests so interesting and knowledgeable, and I know others will too. Or leave a review or hit the follow button. Until the next episode, take care.